0: Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection.
1: Welcome to the Treasures of the Texas Collection, brought to you by Baylor University Libraries, KWBUFM, and William and Kathleen Wardlaw. You have to go to the Village of Independence to go to the Village of Independence. It's not on the road to anywhere, and perhaps therein lies its charm. It is a sleepy, peaceful dot on most maps, hidden in a secluded dale eight miles outside of Brenham. But that has not always been the case. In fact, as Baylor journalist and professor and frequent visitor Robert Darden can attest, independence was once the epicenter of of Texas history, a powerhouse that helped birth a republic and the oldest university in Texas. Robert Darden is here today to tell us about the golden past of Independence Texas. Welcome, Robert.
0: I'm delighted to be here. It's one of my favorite topics.
1: Why is independence important to the people of Texas? Well, history is never far away
0: in independence. The tiny village retains an uncommon number of truly historic buildings. For historians, it played a pivotal role in the foundation of Texas. For Baylor University alumni, it's their birthplace. And for people just looking for a quiet weekend getaway, it's a place redolent of ancient roses, dotted with impressive ruins, and a pretty nifty new museum. In fact, if you're lucky enough to stay in a bed-and-breakfast in Independence, it's a place where you awaken to the sound of miniature ponies and the smell of a lumberjack-sized breakfast.
1: Tell us about the birth of independence.
0: Well, when Stephen F. Austin brought the first European colonists, you know, the so-called old 300, to what would become Texas in 1824, a Mr. John P. Coles was among them. The area around what is now independence was deemed uncommonly promising and was claimed by John P. It eventually became known as Coles Sediment. Now, John P. was also a big believer in education, so much so that he hired brilliant educator Francis Judith Soames Trask from back east to found an academy for girls, which was pretty rare back then. When the school closed during the Texas Revolution, her concerned family sent her brother Olwen Trask to fetch her back. However, once he arrived in Galveston, he impulsively joined the Texas Army and fought for independence from Mexico. Well, alas, Olwen was one of the few Texians to die at the Battle of San Jacinto. And so... Francis stayed. But other schools soon popped up, and independence was quickly nicknamed the Athens of Texas.
1: There's a legend, perhaps it's actually true, about independence and the struggle for Texas independence. Can you shed light on that subject for us?
0: Sure. Among the early residences in the new town, one belonged to a Dr. Asa C. Hoxley, Jr., a veteran of the Siege of Bear during the Texas Revolution. Hoxie built what was then the grandest home in independence under the direct supervision of an imported French architect. It took dozens of slaves nearly two years to complete. And so in the darkest days of the revolution, after the fall of the Alamo, General Sam Houston and his staff stayed with Hoxie en route to San Jacinto. Now during a heated strategy session, so the story goes, Hoxie's granddaughter toddled into the parlor. Houston stopped, picked the kid up, placed her on his knee, and declared, If this child smiles on me, it will be an omen of victory. Well, you know how that ends. The baby smiled, and it was indeed a good omen. By the way, Hoxie was later appointed the Republic of Texas's first medical censor. He was charged to keep the state free of the patent oil salesmen and medical quacks who plagued the frontier. And Houston, well, he decided that independence would be a good place to raise a family as well. Well, it makes sense. Back then, Washington County was the wealthiest, most populous county in the entire state in the 1830s and 40s. And when Texas did declare its independence and nearby Washington on the Brazos, the delegates and guests actually stayed in the newly renamed independence because of the number and quality of accommodations there.
1: Now... Independence is also an important site for Baptists, is it not?
0: That's right. One of the first three Baptist churches in the state was founded in Independence on September 1839 with a whopping 11 members. And by the way, it remains today as the oldest Baptist church in continual operation in the state. In fact, only a couple of years after the Alamo and San Jacinto, there were enough Baptists that a group of them began meeting in nearby Brenham to talk about opening a religious college. The committee consisted of the Reverend James Huckins the first Baptist missionary to Texas Judge REB Baylor and Dr William M Tryon another Baptist missionary to Texas who had the initial idea of a religious college Now their goal as one early supporter wrote was quote to found a Baptist university in Texas upon a plan so broad that the requirements of existing conditions would be fully met and that it would be susceptible of enlargement and development to meet the demands of all ages to come. Well, after much wrangling, these these are Baptists after all, and four years' delays caused by little things like the constant Comanche raids and an invasion by Mexican forces, that's just what happened. The new college was chartered by the Republic of Texas on February 1st, 1845.
1: That new college didn't exactly have an easy go of it, did it?
0: No, it didn't. Actually, the first order of business was to come up with a name. The four finalists were San Jacinto University, Tryon University, and Milam University, before the group settled on Baylor, much to the dismay of the old judge. Now, they needed a place for Baylor. Capitalists all, the first trustees, opened bidding to all Texas cities. Whoever offered the most would get the first Baptist college in the state, and that included land, existing buildings... Livestock, cotton, hay, money in short, everything would be considered in the bid. So the village of Travis came up with $3,500 worth of goods and services and that very scarce commodity cash. Shannon Prairie topped that with 4725 Huntsville saw Shannon Prairie's offer and scrounged together $5,400 But in the end, as you know, Independence won, cobbling together nearly $8,000, which included, by the way, a brace of oxen. Mm -hmm. Civic leaders pointed proudly to the profitability of its existing educational institutions, its location on the Houston to Austin stagecoach line, and the large population. Tryon, incidentally, was the pastor of Independence Baptist Church, the largest and most influential Baptist church in the state back then. Sadly, he did not live long enough to see Baylor flourish. He died in a yellow fever epidemic in the swampy little village of Houston. He remained when wealthy people fled, still tending to the sick. And thus began the hard slog of building and staffing what would eventually become the first co-ed institution of higher education west of the Mississippi, Baylor.
1: Robert, we know a lot of famous people attended Baylor University. Can you talk about some of the more interesting students? Well,
0: one of my favorites of the very earliest attendees was a remarkable young lady by the name of Sally McNeil, who kept a detailed diary of her two years at at independence from 1858 to 1859. Now Sally vowed at an early age never to marry and her very frank diary with its minute details of day-to-day life still delights historians today, especially with its vivid depictions of some well-known administrators and professors including the beloved Horace Clark, who was head of the female department, and the very austere Puritan, the Reverend Rufus C. Burleson, who was head of the boys. Now, Sally's diary is a quirky mixture of girlish pranks and deep discussions of Latin and philosophy and literature, all done in the elegant style of the day. I mean, even her criticisms are elegant. Quote, We had a fine serenade from the brass band last night, as everybody declares but I could not think that there was any harmony in the discordant sound so near us. I, like its strains, heard at a distance. As for the entertainment, the young ladies would have concerts, while the boys would have rousing, heated debates over such topics as whether or not Charles of England should have been executed. There existed a big rivalry between the two branches of Baylor in those days, and the girls' college in particular flourished under Clark's enlightened leadership.
1: Well, Sam Houston is certainly one of the most famous residents of old independence. Are there any interesting stories from his days there?
0: There are lots of stories. You know, one of the homes still standing independence from that era belonged to Sam and Margaret Houston and his very formidable mother-in-law, Nancy Lee. Now, Sam Houston, as history tells us, was a legendary reprobate whose intemperate language scandalized society even as he motivated his troops. And Houston continued a lifelong feud with Rufus Burleson, the autocratic president of Baylor and pastor of the First Baptist Church. Now, according to historian Robert Reed, quote, Houston and Burleson would quarrel in public, then go into old independence Baptists, confess their sins, fall on the floor in repentance and prayer, reconcile, walk outside, and resume their quarrel. Baylor trustees repeatedly reprimanded the abrasive Burleson, but to no avail. Still... Near the end of his life, Houston finally saw the light. He repented and asked for baptism in the creek that separated the men's and women's divisions of Baylor and flowed right by the church. Houston's conversion, by the way, was greeted as an event of statewide importance by joyous Baptists. However, some of those waggish Baylor boys allegedly dammed the little stream, causing it to turn muddy overnight and forcing the baptism more than a mile upstream. According to at least one source, when Sam was told that his sins had been washed away, he retorted, Well, I certainly feel sorry for the fishes. You know, uh, they also say that Houston's wallet was apparently baptized as well, because he promptly declared right then that he'd henceforth pay the pastor's salary.
1: (laughs) Can you talk a bit about the Baptist church that now stands as a museum? for both independence and the early texas baptists well,
0: i'd love to the independence baptist church is now a museum to texas baptist it retains many original fixtures including a rough-hewn chandelier some gorgeous early stained glass and the wooden pews including houston's where he studiously carved his initials with his ever-present pocket knife sam took his whittling very seriously also still standing is the bell tower with the church bell created from melted silver dollars and silverware donated by Houston's mother-in-law, Lee. She's buried next to the brand-new Independence Baptist Church, which sits across Farm to Market Road 50 from the original, and most importantly, still within the sound of that bell, which was her final wish. As for the lovely Margaret Moffat Lee Houston, she's buried in the Independence Cemetery, the victim of yet another yellow fever epidemic, this one in 1867. When entire families lost and some texas coastal towns are decimated back then a hastily enforced quarantine meant that her body could not be transported to huntsville for internment next to her late husband so she stayed in independence
1: the Independence cemetery is a, the resting place of a few of the town's more colorful residents through the years can you tell us about some of those residents
0: well it's a great place mary it is indeed a fascinating and peaceful spot was established in 1823, so it boasts the grave sites of many early Texians. It features, for instance, the grave of Robert McBalpine Williamson, better known as Three-Legged Willie. (laughs) Willie was a veteran of both Gonzales and San Jacinto, somewhere losing a leg along the way and replacing it with an ungainly contraption of his own devising, hence the nickname. He achieved fame as the, quote, law in deep East Texas, dispensing justice, when necessary, with a pistol, like his more famous counterpart in Langtree, Judge Roy Bean. Three-legged Willie, complete with a coonskin cap, sporting nine tails, by the way, opted to retire in independence, and his marker is a popular start stop for Western history buffs. Now, one of the most fascinating people buried in the cemetery is General Jerome Bonaparte Robertson. They had better names back then than we do today, <laughs> don't they? Robertson had just graduated from a Kentucky medical school when he heard of the fight for Texas independence. So he raised a company of volunteers to help old Sam Houston and arrived just after the Battle of San Jacinto in 1837. Robertson liked independence so much that he decided to stay, despite the frequent Comanche raids. He served in both houses of the young Texas legislature, and when Texas joined the Confederacy, raised the 5th Texas Regiment, which is attached to the legendary Hood's Brigade. Now, few brigades saw more action than Hood's. They fought in 40 significant battles. Robertson himself was wounded five times, including once at Gettysburg. After the particularly vicious Battle of Antietam, he succeeded Hood as general. In fact, his son, Felix, was eventually elevated to the rank of general as well. And they became one of the only two father-son general combinations in the Civil War. Robertson's beautifully restored home, by the way, still sits across from Windmill Hill, the site of the original Baylor campus. The Independent Cemetery has other intriguing markers and grave sites, including my favorite, one for Tac- Tacitus T. Clay, a scholar of Latin and Greek, who, along with his four sons, served under Jerome Robertson. The sons all returned safely, but Clay lost a leg. You know, this is no small feat. Of the men who originally enlisted in Hood's Texas Brigade, only 12% survived the horrendous battles of Second Manassas, Antietam, the wilderness. They were even in the infamous Devil's Den at Gettysburg. Now, as for Clay himself, his one-legged ghost is said to occasionally pop up at the welcoming Tacitus T. Clay Bed and Breakfast in Independence. Maybe he's in search of one of Thelma's wonderful breakfasts.
1: Oh, my. So what happened to Baylor?
0: Well, the college flourished for a time in independence, but eventually declined. It struggled to recover after the Civil War and the changing immigration patterns. The railroad bypassed the town for Brenham, and the dirt roads from Brenham and Navasota were virtually impassable in the winter. With the death of the popular Baylor president, William Carey Crane, its fate seemed sealed. The Baylor Men's College left for Central Texas, where it joined Waco University in 1886. Later that year, the popular women's college left for Belton and became, in time, the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. Now in 1885, Independence had five steam, grist mills and cotton gins, three churches, two colleges, good public schools, and a population of about 500. But after the departure of Baylor, just five years later, only 300 people remained. Membership at Independence Baptist, once reaching a high of 159 members in 1886, fell to just 48 at the turn of the last century. As for the buildings of Old Baylor, archaeologist Jay Belew has established that the main building suffered six major fires between 1888 and 1901. A black orphanage on the grounds, I'm sorry to say, may have been the target. The remaining buildings crumbled then in disrepair, and their handsome stones incorporated into other buildings, including the new Luka Meyer Bintke Store, a combination grocery store, restaurant, and pub that is still the heartbeat of the community today.
1: Still, being isolated and relegated to the backwaters of Texas history isn't necessarily all bad, at least for the people who love Texas history.
0: Well, that's right. Being off the beaten track meant that a host of historic buildings survive even today, Mary. One such home is the Seward Plantation, built in 1855 from hand-sawed cedar by John Hoblet Seward. Seward's an interesting cat. He traveled from Illinois to Texas in 1820 with two horses, a saddlebag, a couple of knives, and a Kentucky Long Rifle. He was attacked by Indians in what was then Indian Territory, and eventually came to what was still called Cole Settlement at the time. Seward chose a high hillside with massive oaks and a perpetual spring, then returned to Illinois to retrieve his family. The Kentucky Long Rifle, by the way, served Seward well when he fought beside Sam Houston at the Battle of San Jacinto. The main buildings were lovingly restored a century later by his descendants. The Seward Plantation is still a working farm, with most of the original furniture and some unique architectural features, including board and bat and slave quarters from a time when the Brazos Valley was a leading cotton-producing area, a blacksmith shop, and a double-pin haymow, all still intact today. It's available for tours, but by reservation only.
1: What are some of the other buildings that have survived?
0: Well, Independence has several that are worth a big peek. One is an ancient structure made of adobe, thought to be a jail, complete with bars on the windows when the area was under Mexican control. Nearby is the Blanton Block, a four-building complex that was once a hotel, boarding house, depot, and general store from the 1840s. It was reconstructed years later from the plans of the originals. Of course, many, many buildings are lost, including several magnificent mansions from the early 1800s. That now exist only in faded photographs and drawings. Even for the Masonic Lodge, once which once boasted a who's who of early Texians as members, it's gone too. As for the buildings of Old Baylor, what remains survives on two facing hills, separated by the highway and the little creek dubbed the River Jordan by Baylor students, since it separated the male and female campuses. The boys of Baylor, by the way, referred to the other side of the creek as the Promised Land. <laughs> The columns of the Female College at Academy Hill are perhaps the most impressive site. The Independence Historical Society has moved several other historic buildings nearby to create an unusually pleasant park, especially in the spring when the surrounding fields are awash in blue blue. On Windmill Hill, the foundations of the Men's College are the centerpiece of a self-guided walking tour, complete with fascinating color markers that recreate what life was like at Baylor more than 100 years ago.
1: Fortunately, for those who love history and pleasant things, Independence has had a number of angels throughout the years. Can you tell us about some of those angels?
0: Uh, You know, that's right. One is Houston businessman David Wolfe, who has worked tirelessly with the Independence Historic Foundation to protect the village from the worst excesses of modern life, buying at-risk land, planting oaks, creating walking paths, and erecting a host of fascinating plaques and memorials. Another is graduate from Baylor, Lanella Gray, who has become the village's unofficial mayor, and she's the hostess to the hordes of Baylor students who arrive each fall for a crash course in Baylor history and tradition. Lanella is a tireless promoter of independence. Consequently, because of their work and many others, independence today is a soothingly addictive retreat from modern life. Visitors can stroll the entire village, walking up and down what historian Robert Reed calls quote, the seven hills of independence. Although, as he freely admits, you really have to work to get to that seventh hill.
1: Well, across one such hill spreads the famous Antique Rose Emporium, which does an international catalog business in rare roses and other plants and is one of my favorite places.
0: It is spectacular. The Antique Rose Emporium is a nationally known repository of the scarcest of roses. A couple dozen acres of brilliant color with hidden nooks and crannies, gardens, arbors, ponds, even a chapel, all ablaze in color. My favorite is a delicate white Baylor antique rose, salvaged from the ruins of the grounds of Old Baylor, and itself a hardy survivor of more difficult times.
1: What should visitors to Independence take away from their visit to this charming little community, Robert?
0: Well, I like the words from an address about Independence, in 1952, at a homecoming presided over by the doctor L.R. Eliot, he wrote of Baylor's 40 years and in independence this Quote, In this thousand mile laboratory, and during this 100 year experiment, Baptists have staked their denominational fortune on these principles, have made a demonstration of their value for the religious welfare of man, and have written a working formula with a large measure of success. Of independence itself, Baylor professor and historian Dr. Michael Parrish once had this to say A broad cross-section of Texans lived, worked, preached, taught and struggled for many years in independence It was considered the economic and cultural center of Texas Nearby Washington on the Brazos was a seat of power And Today, independence still strongly reflects that glory History here is palpable It hangs in the air like Spanish moss and kudzu. Finally, as for Professor Reed, who has long been one of Baylor's most beloved professors, he returns to independence as often as he can. And his favorite spot is on Windmill Hill, in front of the foundations of the old buildings. Quote, When I'm here, I can visualize this era like nowhere else. I try to visualize those kids going to classes, and chapel and the Tryon Hall. It is the spirit of old Baylor. It is the students who came across the frontier filled with a passion for learning. That's what I see when I stand there. So I guess the last question is what will you see in independence?
1: There's so much to see in independence and if you can't make it to independence the Texas collection on the Baylor campus has the largest collection of independence-related documents, books, maps, letters, photographs, memoirs, diaries, magazines, and even newspaper articles. They also have minutes and official records.
0: You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, The Texas Collection at Baylor University.